Our God who in heaven is like unto thee. There is not another God. There is no other God. There is none like thee. And, and what is man that thou art mindful of him? A God of infinite perfection in relationship with man with infinite imperfection. What a, what a salvation and a gospel we get to proclaim that men as guilty as I can be, can find forgiveness in the finished and accomplished work of Jesus Christ. We are a people who have been caught up and swept into a family. We have been caught up by grace and swept into a family of grace to become proclaimers of a gospel of grace. And oh my, Heavenly Father, might you find this congregation being faithful to that message, setting aside all judgments and, and, and criticisms so that we might proclaim something as pure and as beautiful and as lovely as the salvation that you have accomplished apart from merit, fully done, fully accomplished, fully finished by the altogether lovely one, Christ Jesus himself. Father, might this, these few minutes allow us to feast on all that is ours in Christ Jesus. Do that in the power of the Holy Spirit for Jesus' sake. Lord, we thank you for the privilege to give. Indeed, we're the ones caught up in materialism. We're the ones that are trying to prop up our, our, our failing self-image by buying a new watch and putting on a new blouse, thinking that that would somehow give us the honor and glory that we so long for. We've, we've worked ourselves into utter debt because we think that perhaps maybe something that we drive would, would make us have more value. Oh, God, forgive us. Glory and dignity and honor and gladness belong to you. They're found in your presence in no other place. And so, Father, in, in response to having our grandest needs met in a relationship with you through faith in Christ, it is our honor and privilege to give. Take every dime and use it for the advancement of the kingdom of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you. Take your Bibles, if you will, and open them with me to Genesis 19, and let's continue our study of the book of Genesis. Um, I'm going to read you uh, a fairly large chunk of uh, Genesis 19, perhaps almost all of it, but um, it's a story. It's a story, the, the first half of it, I think you're familiar with. The last few verses, I'm, you might find a little bit new, so you bear with me. Last week, I was worshiping in a church in Washington, D.C., and the pastor said that preaching is a corporate business. It's a corporate responsibility. And I was thinking about that. You know, there is an interesting statement that Jesus makes in Luke chapter 7 where he says, Take heed how you listen. <laughs> so um, it, there's, there's a responsibility that I do decently, but there's also responsibility for you to listen well. So you need to pray that I do well, and I want you to know that I have certainly prayed for you all week. That um, indeed we might enter into this corporate business of preaching and listening. You follow beginning at verse at verse one, chapter nineteen, the story of Lot, which I think someone many of you know. 
Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them, and he bowed himself with his face toward the ground. And he said, Here now, my lords, please turn into your servant's house and spend the night, and wash your feet. Then you may rise early and go on your way. And they said, No, but we will spend the night in the open square. But he insisted strongly, so they turned into him and entered his house. Then he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. Now before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both old and young, all the people from every quarter, surrounded the house. And they called to Lot and said to him, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us, that we may know them carnally. So Lot went out to them through the doorway, shut the door behind him, and said, Please, my brethren, do not do so wickedly. See, now I have two daughters who have not known a man. Please let me bring them out to you, and you may do to them as you wish. Only do nothing to these men, since this is the reason they have come under the shadow of my roof. And they said, Stand back. Then they said, this one came to stay here, and he keeps acting as a judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. So they pressed hard against the man Lot and came near to break down the door. But the men reached out their hands and pulled Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they became weary trying to find the door. Then the men said to Lot, have you anyone else here? Son-in-law, your sons, your daughters, and whomever you have in the city, take them out of this place. For we will destroy this place because the outcry against them has grown great before the face of the Lord. And the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law who had married his daughters and said, get up, get out of this place for the Lord will destroy this city. But to his sons-in-law, he seemed to be joking in the morning dawned, the angels urged Lot to hurry, saying, Arise, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be consumed in the punishment of the city. And while he lingered, the men took hold of his hand, his wife's hand, and the hands of his two daughters, and the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out and set him outside the city. So it came to pass, when they had brought them outside, that he said, Escape for your life. Do not look behind you, nor stay anywhere in the plain. Escape to the mountains, lest you be destroyed. Then Lot said to them, Please know, my lords, indeed now your servant has found favor in, in your sight, and you have increased your mercy, which you have shown me by saving my life. But I cannot escape to the mountains, lest some evil overtake me and I die. See now, this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Please let me escape there. Is it not a little one, and my house and my soul shall live? And he said to him, See, I have favored you concerning this thing, also in that I will not overthrow this city for which you have spoken. Hurry, escape there, for I cannot do anything until you arrive there. Therefore the name of the city was called Zoar. The sun had risen upon the earth when Lot entered Zoar. Then the Lord rained the brimstone and fire on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. So he overthrew those cities, all the plain, all the inhabitants of the cities, and what grew on the ground. But his wife looked back behind him, and she became a pillar of salt. Now, folks, that's the story that you know. I want to skip the next three verses and down to verse 30. This is the part that I don't think you do know. 
Then Lot went up out of Zoar and dwelt in the mountains, and his two daughters were with him, for he was afraid to dwell in Zoar, and he and his two daughters dwelt in a cave. Now the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is no man on the earth to come into us, as is the custom of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and, he will lie, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve the lineage of our father. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. It happened on the next day that the firstborn said to the younger, Indeed, I lay with my father last night. Let us make him drink wine tonight also, and you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve the lineage of our father. Then they made their father drink wine that night also, and the younger arose and lay with him, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus, both the daughters of Lot were with child by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. And the younger, she also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the people of Ammon to this day. The grass withers, the flower fades. But the word of our God endures forever, does it not? Years ago, I, I preached a sermon, and the title of the sermon was Finishing Well. You might have noticed the title of this morning's is Finishing Unwell. <laughs> you know, I think we, um, we're all optimists at heart. We, um, we, we, we'd like to, I mean, we join optimist clubs. We don't join pessimist clubs. It, um, some of us are incurably optimistic, but who would like to be friends with an incurably pessimistic human being? I mean, nobody wants to be uh, it, be around that. And so we, we live out our lives fighting to be optimistic. I mean, life, we, we start life with all this, this, um, this hope and promise and, and desire for the future. And we, we've gotten the, stuck in the back of our minds that as, as life unfolds, it's going to get better. You know, we did some bad things when we were teenagers, but we were just sowing some wild oats. I mean, you know, that was just mistakes of youth and, uh, you know, cut us some slack. And, and, but we learned our lessons. We're better people for it. And, and um, we're thinking that, you know, that, that's pretty much behind us and we're going to get better. And, you know, as, as we grow older, you know, some of the things that come with being age or growing older is you're going to be wiser, hopefully. And, and, you know, you're going to have a little bit more job security, perhaps, maybe a little extra disposable income. And, and maybe you're going to have a little more leisure, you know, as, as life goes on. You know, I just want to make sure that uh, and, we, and we all think that optimistically that uh, that life is is going to, you know, Settle down the older we get, because we are wiser, we hope, you would think, after some of the things we've gone through, wouldn't you? Well, folks, that all may be true, but if there's ever an example of a man who didn't quite fit that pro forma, it was locked. If there was ever a man who finished unwell, it was locked. Gang, this story that I just read you about um, all that ugliness, and we'll get to it in a second, um, this didn't happen when he was a teenager. This happened at the end of his life. And the close of his life, Lot is in a cave, in a dark, dank cave, penniless, drunk, and impregnating his own daughters, who then give birth 
to two of Israel's greatest enemies, the nation of Ammon and the nation of Moab. I mean, that's not the way the script's supposed to go, you know? We're, we're supposed to live this thing out and get older and get wiser and get wealthier and get, you know, health is a problem, yeah, but, you know, it's supposed to all settle down when we get older and, and, and things are supposed to look up. And yet in this man, Lot is a, is a picture of a feckless, wasted life. And, and this is, this is the man at the end of his life. I mean, if he were a teenager, maybe we could cut him some slack for this behavior. But this is no teenager. Anybody want to end up like this? I wouldn't think so. So what I propose, hopefully, to do today is to try and learn some lessons from the life of Lot. Here's the first one, ladies and gentlemen, um, in terms of a lesson. Call it an insight. Call it a lesson. Hopefully, it'll... uh, It'll help us, but (laughs) it goes like this. Christians can waste their lives. Uh, Not much optimism there, huh? Aren't you glad you came this morning to find out that Christians can waste their lives? You know, folks, for, for me, the hardest part of this story was to discover that Lot was a Christian. What? Somebody behaving like this is, you know, why do you draw that conclusion, Jimmy? Because the New Testament, 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 7 and 8, you can look at it this afternoon if you like, make it very clear that that Lot was a righteous man. I I struggled with that as as I studied this passage, folks, that this guy was redeemed living like this. But folks, you check 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 7 and 8, and I'll tell you, case closed. It's a slam dunk. Lot, there's no question about it, there's no debate, there's no discussion needed. He is a, he's a redeemed, righteous Christian guy, and he's living like this. Here's a man who wasted his life. A Christian. Christians can waste their lives. You want to see how he wasted his life? Well, first of all, you might want to take a look at the influence that he had over Sodom. You know, he's considered a city father. Maybe not a city, but a city leader. You know where I get that? It's out of verse 1 when we're told that he's sitting at the city gate. Do you know what the city gate was, folks? The city gate was the place of commerce. It was the, it was the place of uh, city government. It was the place of, uh, it was the marketplace. It was the place of gossip and news. And, and people gathered there to, to, to engage in legal transactions. It was a place for city officials. And um, that's where Lot is seated now. He's, a, he's one of the, you know, the, the leaders of the city there at the city gate. And, um, and then you, you I mean, you, you, you might be able to conclude that if you look at Sodom from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m., that, boy, this is a fine place. You know, this is a, this is a real tourist hotspot, old Sodom. You need to go there and visit Sodom. But then when the sun goes down, the real Sodom comes out to play. And it's described for you, folks, in verses 4 through 9. You want a summary? Here it is. It is homosexual gang rape. Look at the text. It, young and old, everybody from all parts of the city, they're all there. And what they want to engage in is homosexual gang rape. 
This place makes San Francisco looks like a, look like a church picnic. And then in verse 9, they turned to Lot and said, listen here, you've just been coming in here judging this, so you better, you better watch it, buddy, because we're going to take you worse than the rest of them. You know, it's not, it doesn't look real good on your resume to have on there that you were a city official in the city of Sodom. It's kind of like saying that you were a general in Hitler's army. Oh, you might be a general, but it was Hitler's army that you were a general, you know. <laughs> That's not a good thing. Well, Sodom was a city official in Sodom. And you see how much influence he had over his city? Wow. Man, is that a nice place to live? Don't walk those streets at night, folks. You might get gang raped. And our city fathers is a fellow by the name of Lot. The other way that you can see how he wasted his life is taking a look at his family. Oh, my. His sons-in-law, when, when he goes to his sons-in-law, I think it's in verse 14, they think he's a family joke. This old fool is nutso. And um, they conclude that he's just lost it someplace. And so his words, his warnings to them go unheeded, and his sons-in-law are lost in that outpouring of judgment. And then there's his wife. We don't know her name other than Lot's wife. She is a monument to a divided heart. You know, you, you've heard me say, um, and I say quite a bit, that, you know, brothers, living with us, brothers, ought to be sanctifying for our wives. Did you hear that? That is, just living with us, brothers, ought to be sanctifying for our wives. <laughs> Not in Lot's house. I mean, Lot's wife is anything but sanctified. And interestingly enough, in the New Testament... Luke 17, verse 32, Jesus says, remember Lot's wife. He doesn't say, remember Abraham. He doesn't say, remember Jacob or remember Sarah or remember Ruth or remember David or remember Isaiah. He said, remember Lot's wife because there's a lot to learn from Lot's wife. Because she was a monument to a divided heart. But she too according to verse 26, was swept up and lost in the judgment as well. And then his two daughters. You thought George Bush had two difficult daughters. Oh, my goodness. I mean, what fine young women Lot has as daughters. I mean, these, these girls are completely amoral. Sodom lives on in a cave where two young women come up with this solution to their problem. Hey, Margaret, why don't we get our daddy drunk and uh, sleep with him? This is dark. This is, this is putrid. This is Lot's family. Complete family disintegration. He leaves no family legacy. In fact, he didn't leave any legacy at all, except a bad one. Moab and Ammon. <laughs> you know, we, we, Lot was our father. You know, the Moabites and the Ammonites, Israel was always fighting them. And, and, and then after this scene in chapter 19, the Bible says another, doesn't say another thing about Lot, that one instance in Second uh, Peter. It's, it's almost as if the Bible... Pulls a, a, a veil around him on purpose. 
so that we don't hear anything about his death, anything about his burial. When we leave Lot, we leave him in a cave, drunk, engaged in incest. Now, how would that look on your tombstone, folks? I mean, you do want to leave a, live a life that leaves a mark, don't you? I mean, don't you want to leave a life? Don't you want to live a life that matters? Matters to who? Well, my family and my neighbors and, you know, the people, my, my city government. Lot didn't do that. Lot wasted a life. And so can you. Wasted. It's an ugly scene. Here's lesson number two. And folks, I would say to you that really the lesson of the life of Lot is this one. If if there's anything that I'd like to, to get across this morning, it would be this. Lesson number two is this. Sin is like yeast. You know, the, the New Testament says a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Well, leaven and, and yeast are the same thing. Um, for you ladies out there who don't make bread, um, which is probably a lot of you, uh, yeast is alive, or at least it seems that way. You take this little yellow and red packet, and you tear off the top, and you dump this stuff into this bowl full of flour stuff, and, and in a matter of minutes, it's almost like the bowl is moving. I mean, the, the, the stuff's alive. I mean, the whole loaf is, is influenced by this little teaspoon of yeast. Sins like that. If allowed, it has the potential to dominate your life. Now, I want to show you that in the life of Lot. Because if there's any lesson that he leaves behind, it's this one, folks. Keep your Bibles open. If you can keep a finger in chapter 19, go back with me to chapter 13. Now, back in chapter 13 is where Abraham and Lot, you know, Abraham was Lot's uncle. And um, um, it's, it's at that juncture where Abraham says to Lot, now, Lot, you go to the left, I'll go to the right. You go to the right, I'll go to the left. Whatever, you pick one, you take one, and I'll take the other. Whatever, it doesn't make any difference to me, you know, which one you want on. Because we got too many people here, too many cows, too many, you know, what problems. So you take one, I'm going to go the other way. That's, that's where we are in the story. Now look with me at chapter 13, verse 10. Abraham extends this offer, and we're, and we're told. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw the plain of Jordan. Now, gang, that, that language, lifted up your eyes and saw, that's a Hebraism. That, that's kind of a, a, a piece of slang. It's a, it's a way of saying things. He, he lifted up his eyes and he, whoa! That is, he was overcome with excitement over the allurement of the plain, which included the plains of Canaan, which included Sodom. It's a description, gang, of lust. Lusting for something that has an allure, has an, an, an excitement for you. And so Lot lifted up his eyes and his little heart goes pitter-pat. Oh boy, look at that. And then we're told, um, uh, in the next verse, in verse 11, then Lot chose for himself. So it's gone now from, boy, this is exciting. 
to his choosing that to be his uh, place of dwelling. Folks, Sodom is mentioned numerous times in the Bible. And almost every time it is mentioned, it is mentioned as almost a synonym to that of sexual perversion. How is it that a city full of sexual perversion could be attractive to a professing Christian? Tell me that. Isn't it embarrassing to us that looking on that excites us? But it does, doesn't it? Doesn't it? All of us. Gang, there is an excitement, there is an allurement to sin. Because I'll tell you this, you want it bottom line, sin's fun. At least for a while. If it weren't, we wouldn't want it. But it started with a look and it went to a choice. And then in verse 12, same chapter 13. Oh, by the way, before I go to verse 12, look back at verse 11. Because once Lot chose, last sentence, and they separated from each other. That is, this choice, you've got to hold on to this because I'm going to talk about it later. But um, uh, this choice meant that Lot had to separate from Abraham. Righteous Abraham. Christ figure, Christ type Abraham. If I choose this, I'm going to have to leave Abraham. We'll get back to it. But in chapter, uh, in same chapter, verse 12, Abram dwelt in the land of Canaan and Lot dwelt in the cities of the plain and pitched his tent even as far as Sodom. So now he's looked, then he chose, and now his tents are pitched, not in Sodom, just close to it. He's just on the outskirts, you know. Um, he, he's kind of in the suburbs of Sodom. He wants to be as close to sexual perversion as he can possibly get without, you know, still being considered righteous. How close to sin can I get and still be okay? Bad question. If you're asking that question, you're in trouble, folks. But he moves his tent to the suburbs. And now look at chapter 14, verse 12. They also took Lot, Abram's brother, who dwelt in Sodom. It started with a look, then a choice, then a move to the suburbs, and now he's inside Sodom. Then we come to chapter 19, and guess what? He's a city official. He went from looking at it to choosing it to moving close to moving in to becoming a city official. Lot's not only in Sodom, Sodom's in Lot. And Lot's a big shot. So much so that when it was time to go in chapter 19, we're told in verse 16 that when the angel said, get on out of here, Lot, because we're about to destroy this place. Do you see what we're told in verse 16? Pitiably, Lot lingered. Don't ask me to leave this. Don't ask me to give up this. And he had to be dragged out of the place, folks. They take him by the hand and his wife and his two daughters and they drag him out of the city. The whole family dilly-dallies over the place. 
His wife wanted to go back and get her jewelry, and, and her, his daughters wanted to go back and get all their fancy clothes, and he needed to get back and get his checkbook. They loved the place. He used to live in a tent, by the way, when he was with Abraham. By the way, Abraham still lives in a tent. But Lot, he's got him a house now. Abraham's in a tent, Lot's in a house. Because Abraham was a pilgrim, Lot was a resident. By the way, you know what kind of people lived in cities? Cities were places of security because they had, you know, they had city walls and gates and, and all that business. And, and that was a nomadic culture. And, and, and if you lived out in the, you know, the wilderness out there, there was these roaming tribes of uh, robbers and thieves and whatever. And, and so people moved inside the city to be safe. And not only in the city, the real estate was more expensive inside the city than it was outside, you know. So the, the cities were places of security and sophistication. All the wealthy people lived there, you know. So Lot wanted to, he's not going to live out there with the nomads, not for Lot. Nah, nah, nah. I want to live in the place where there's significance and security. I want to go inside the place where I can, you know, be a big shot and, you know, be, you know, and, and, and be known as somebody who lives inside the city. From early on, folks, 13, chapter 13, verse 12, Lot was starstruck with the city. Because he thought, you know, in there in the city, you know, oh, you know, my daughters, they can get themselves a good education. And, and you know, the, and his wife told him, you know, there's a lot more career opportunities for you, you know, if you're inside the city lot. And, and it doesn't make any difference that it's eight up a cent. Yeah, because you got a lot of career opportunities to think about. And by the way, you don't want our daughters marrying some riffraff, some blue-collar nomad, do you? But whatever the case was, folks. By the time the angels arrived, announcing judgment, Sodom, which is a synonym for sexual perversion, had such a grip on Lot that he had to be dragged out of it. Sin had him by the jugular. And it all started when Lot lifted up his eyes and saw. Small thing. Small thing. You know, guys, I'm, I'm not trying to, I hope you know this, but I, I'm just trying to give you an illustration. And I'm just trying to stick it in your head. That's all I'm trying to do. So cut me some slack. It would be something like this. Sin starts up here, and then it's not long before it's down here. And then it's just a short step until it's down here. And before you know it, it's down here. Sins like yeast, folks. It starts very little and then it takes over. How many good men do you know who were who were ruined by moving into Sodom? This lingering lot like religion abounds today, folks. You know, I read a story just recently from um, a Mike Iaconelli book, and he lives in Northern California. And he says, uh, in Northern California, there's all these cattle ranches, and, and cows are everywhere, and ranches are everywhere. And he says, you know, without fail, I mean, regularly, cows get out and find their way up to the road. And, and, um, and, and, and so much so that in their, his little area, they have city ordinances. They have range laws that if you're driving down the highway and you hit one of these cows, you are ticketed, not the cow, not the owner, not the cow owner. I mean, you're the one that's liable because you hit the cow. Isn't that interesting? He said, one morning I read in the paper, a farmer was explaining how a cow got onto the road. This is the explanation. A cow 
is nibbling on a tuft of grass in the middle of the field. Moving from one tuft to the next, and before you know it, he, he uh, ends up uh, at some grass next to the fence. Noticing a nice clump of green grass right on the other side of the fence, the cow stumbles through an old tear in the fence and finds himself outside the road. Cows don't intend to get lost. They just nibble their way to lostness. The death of a soul is never quick, folks. It's a slow death. There's a succession of little deaths that accumulate until one day we wake up and we've nibbled ourselves right into Sodom. Christians with drug habits. Christians with porno habits. It's tragic, brethren. It's tragic. It's tragic for you. It's tragic for the kingdom. It's tragic for your families. How did we get here? Like Lot did. I've got to hurry. Here's lesson number three. Moving away from Abraham will always cost you. And remember, guys, Abraham is the promise bearer. He's the Christ figure. And when Lot chose Sodom, <laughs> he moved away from Abraham. He moved away from the righteous one. Gang, you never want to be very far away from Abraham. In fact, the closer you are, the better. But if you choose to move to Sodom, Abraham's not going to stop you. You know, we wonder about the leanness in our souls. Did you move? There's your answer. You know, we sing a song around here. I told Jimmy Umloff one time that was my favorite song. It's by Fanny Crosby. What would we do without Fanny Crosby? But Fanny Crosby sings, Close to thee, close to thee, all along life's pilgrim journey. Savior, let me walk close to thee. You move away from the righteous one. And it's going to cost you. Gang, that's not a threat. That's a plea. I'm not wagging fingers. I'm saying, please don't do it. Because we'll all pay a price. Here's the fourth and final lesson. i got to quit. But I want you to go back to the text because I didn't read this part, but I want to read it now. It's verses 27, 28, and 29. Here's lesson number four. Though you moved, Abraham is never out of the picture. Look, and Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. Then he looked toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the plain. And he saw it and behold, the smoke of the land, which he went, went up like the smoke of a furnace. Look at verse 29, gang. Feast on this. And it came to pass when God destroyed the cities of the plain that God remembered 
Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had dwelt. Folks, tell me, according to that, why is it that God displayed mercy on Lot? It was because of Abraham. He remembered Abraham. And he sent Lot out. Folks, God is willing to grant mercy to someone as inconsistent and sinful as I am based on the righteousness of somebody else. As much damage as Sodom has, our choices has done to our souls, guys. God will not allow judgment to overtake us. Why? It's because of Christ. God remembers Christ. And thus I am spared. I, the undeserving one, get delivered because God accepts the righteousness of somebody else and applies it to me. That's the gospel, ladies and gentlemen. Because of the righteousness of another, I get delivered. In the face of all of my inconsistencies, in the face of all of my bad choices and infidelities, God is still faithful to me. Why? Because of you, Jesus. Because you are altogether lovely. And because you are, judgment does not overtake me. What a message to proclaim. Let's quit. Our Father, I do pray that you will teach your people mightily from this bad example uh, in the life of Lot. And that you will um, show us, Father, how it is that we might... Stay close, real close, very, very, very close to the altogether righteous one, Christ Jesus, in whose name we pray.